I'm Alan Kavana of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of The Athletic. On this episode, the resurgence of Team Hendrick, where they are, how it's happening, and what it means for the free agent market, plus a look ahead to Phoenix and what we should expect when it comes to passing at this year's championship track. But first, as always, this is episode 51 of Positive Regression. This is the Bobby Hamilton edition. David, this may confuse some people, asking us, when did Bobby Hamilton drive the 51 Cup car? Well, it was the 51 car in the movie Days of Thunder. Yes, he was the real-life Rowdy Burns behind the wheel. More on that in a second, David, but as we bring up the name Bobby Hamilton, let me just tell you a quick story. The first car and driver, and actually a truck, but the first big race car I ever saw at speed Bobby Hamilton was driving it, David, and I will never forget it because uh, it was 2003. I was a lifelong race fan, but I did not go to my first big NASCAR weekend until 2003. I was working for Fox as a production assistant back then, and I just happened to mosey on in to Dover for truck practice, and a truck flies by at full speed, and it was Bobby Hamilton, and it was one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my life. Even after all that time, I couldn't believe how fast a machine was going, that a human was driving it. And I, I made the comment to somebody, what if they crash? Like, you know, I had liked racing my whole life, and I still was in disbelief that someone could do this. That's my Bobby Hamilton story. That's actually pretty wild, because I've never given any thought to the first driver I saw at speed. So that's really cool that you remember that. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, I, look, I, I, in, in just researching Bobby Hamilton, I kind of came to the realization and, and I'm not sure that I even knew, but I kind of cared a lot about Bobby Hamilton. Um, but we can, we can start with the, the days of thunder race. It took place at Phoenix raceway, convenient enough, considering this weekend's race in 1989, they were filming scenes for the movie during that race and Bobby Hamilton was one of three drivers entered with a backup car prepared by Hendrick Motorsports. One of the cars, the Hardy's number 18 driven by Tommy Ellis failed to qualify for the race, but Bobby Hamilton qualified his car fifth and drove near the front, eventually working to the lead with the help of some pit stops before his engine blew and uh, I found it interesting. I, I went back and I found an old newspaper article. Uh, he did not have a movie camera in his car. The other two did, including Greg Sachs, who exited the race because of handling problems due to the camera. <laughs> uh, now, of Hamilton, Rick Hendrick said, Bobby Hamilton is a good young driver. He was 32, by the way. My health times have changed with a bright future in Winston Cup racing. He wants to do well, and he wants to learn, and that's all you can ask for. The number 51 car he is driving does not carry a camera, but we need to keep him in the race for other cars to film. I think we'll just try to keep him out on the lead lap, and if he's got a shot for the victory, we'll go for it. Uh, and, and to some degree, they, they tried that. Uh, now, at that time, Hamilton was not an unknown. He had won an Xfinity Series race earlier that year at Richmond, if I recall correctly. Uh, but this was the moment, the point of perception, as we've discussed, that landed him in the Cup Series the following year and for the 13 years after that. Now, 
I have a favorite Bobby Hamilton memory, and that was his 2005 Truck Series race at Daytona. He started dead last, drove in the rear of the field all night, and with about 15 to go, pushed towards the front and ultimately took the lead right as a caution light went on on the final lap. It was such a close finish that Jimmy Spencer went to victory lane, and it was after a review that they pushed Spencer's truck out of victory lane and pushed Hamilton's truck into victory lane. Awkward. And his, yeah, and his strategy for, Jimmy Spencer wasn't happy about that, by the way, but, <laughs> and his, uh, his strategy for the race was emulated the next day in the Xfinity series race by both Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Michael Waldrip, and this was by design. Earnhardt was in his motor coach. Uh, he watched the race, and after it was over, he called Michael, who was doing play-by-play for Speed Channel at that point, and told him more or less, hey, we've got a new plan. And they tried it out. Didn't work as well. Dill Jr. finished third in the race. Some guy named Tony Stewart kind of prevented that win from happening. But uh, they took that lesson that they learned from Bobby Hamilton, chilled around in the back, and then made a concerted effort to the front. And, uh, and I was there, I was at that race and got to see it. And yeah, Bobby Hamilton just kind of played, uh, played possum the entire race and, and won at Daytona. Very cool. Bobby Hamilton, four career cup victories. David, dare I ask our audience, what age was Bobby Hamilton when he won his first race? I do believe he was 39 years old. 39 years old. He won four races in a span of three years, 39, 40, and 41. I'm sorry, that might be wrong, but he won at least three races at ages 39, 40, and 41, and then won a few years later, but age 39 creeping up again, David. How about that? Yeah. And, you know, it, it was it was kind of a – I mentioned the 32-year-old uh, start, but – Kind of a, a late career, but reestablished himself uh, after his Cup Series stint in the Truck Series as a marquee team owner, as a series champion. And I think it was back in 2006, a young David Smith pitched in on a, uh, a marketing firm pitch to Fastenal for his Truck Series team. And that is how Fastenal, which is still in the sport as a sponsor, got into the sport. Originally with Bobby Hamilton, he would actually only compete three races as a driver in the Fastenal Dodge, if I'm remembering, yep, I'm remembering that correctly, uh, before he announced that uh, he had been diagnosed with cancer and had to get out of the car. I don't know. A lot of things Bobby Hamilton kind of, uh, kind of, uh, popped for me. Yes. A, a cool, uh, a cool way into his, uh, Cup Series career and a lengthy NASCAR career. And, and as you said, unfortunately, he, uh, died from head and neck cancer in 2007, just shy of his 50th birthday, but episode 51 of Positive Regression dedicated to Bobby Hamilton. Let's get it started. David Hendrick Motorsports appears to be back, at least back in contention, strong from top to bottom, right? All four cars showing up in these early part of the season. Uh, you know, we saw glimpses of it. Chase Elliott has won races the last few years. Alex Bowman won last year. Uh, we expect to see the speed that we saw in Daytona with qualifying on the front row and all that stuff. But the organizational speed, top to bottom, throughout an entire race, you'll hear the drivers refer to this as pace. That is something we haven't seen in a few years, I feel at least, at least top to bottom, all four cars showing pace, showing good speed throughout an entire race in the small portion of the season that we have so far. I believe we've seen that. What do you think of it? Are, is this real? Are, are we seeing big picture? Are we seeing Hendrick the comeback? Yes. 
Yeah, I, I think I would agree to that. I think uh, folks paying attention to practice times noticed Alex Bowman stomping the field. It felt like a, you know, 39-year-old Kevin Harvick at Phoenix kind of dominance in his practice sessions. And there was a sense that last Sunday's race was for seconds. I mean, it was, it was really the 88 cars to lose. And, you know, and one thing, yes, two races on non-drafting ovals is a very small sample size. But on the other hand, when is the last time that we have thought of Hendrick Motorsports and their ability to dominate a race in this fashion? Uh, it hasn't been for a while. Uh, even Jimmy Johnson's seventh championship, I don't, I don't think we saw him go out and, and act as a, uh, some kind of firewall to prevent others from winning. But, um, this was very interesting, Alan. And I, I think, I feel good in saying that Hendrick Motorsports is at a place where we can certainly take them more seriously. Yeah, and let's break down why, because that's what we do here on Positive Regression. The first thing that I thought of, at least, I mean, on the surface, I was on SiriusXM last week, and it just happened to pop into my head that this is really, I mean, you look at the current lineup of the four drivers, and this is the third year in a row they've had this, this lineup of the four drivers. I don't think that can be overlooked. You go back to 2018 and the line, the same lineup, and it was really Jimmy and three children, right? I mean, that was kind of the storyline. Ha ha. I mean, I, I think there was videos of him driving, you know, the other three, Jimmy Johnson driving the other three around like he was dropping them off to school or something. But, you know, you go another year, Chase Elliott starts winning. Last year, Alex Bowman comes into his own. Byron, you expect him to start coming into his own and get that victory. You know, we saw the speed and the pulls out of him last year. Now with, you know, Chase Elliott, championship contender, Jimmy Johnson is who he is, Bowman a winner, William Byron in year three and, and looking strong. I mean, I think as a whole, Hendrick has evolved into a strong team top to bottom. I, I think it starts there with just driver experience. I think so. And I, I think I might actually want to go one step further. So the greater the number of repetitions, more races, more worthwhile pass encounters, more restarts at the front of the field, more everything really, the better a driver should become. But it strikes me this particular group of young drivers is interesting. Jeff Gluck wrote an article about this on The Athletic about how Jimmy Johnson was growing into a mentorship role for a few young drivers like Corey LaJoy John Hunter Niemicek, uh, Jagger Jones out in the ARCA West series, and Chase Elliott. So we know, at least anecdotally, Elliott is seeking his tutelage. Now, uh, the other two, a little bit different. William Byron works closely with Max Pappas. Alex Bowman works closely with Josh Wise. And uh, these relationships are more than just advice. It is full-blown coaching. Both of those drivers are students of the sport. They're both handed and asked to give consideration to data. So their improvements, what we've seen from them lately, is not solely related to time in the car. That's a big part of it. Don't get me wrong, but there is another deliberate effort being made to become more intelligent and well-rounded drivers and I thinking we're watching them reap the rewards of this extra effort. 
You have a lot of data on your website, motorsportsanalytics.com, about age and performance at, at certain ages, production, as we always talk about here on Positive Regression, and production at certain ages. Let's go over the ages. We know Jimmy Johnson, the, the elder statesman, on his uh, retirement tour on the way out after a wonderful career, obviously. But Alex Bowman, uh, 26. He'll be 27 this year. William Byron, he'll race this year as a 22-year-old. And Chase Elliott will race this year as a 24-year-old, uh, along with experience, the, the ages of the younger Hendrick drivers. What, what do the numbers, what does historical data tell us? Is that any advantage to what we're seeing right now? Specific to uh, the young drivers, the peer projections for Chase Elliott and William Byron sort of factor in the notion they are each one step further from this production wilderness that typically traps drivers from age 18 to 23. Elliot is projected for the seventh best peer this season in the series. William Byron is projected for the 15th best, and that would be a career year. Bowman is a different case, though. Uh, this is his age 27 season, as you said, and while he is more likely to produce better now than in years past, his past included five seasons of, uh, five seasons out of five of production that was below the series average for his age. Therefore, he ranks 20th in his peer projection and is slated to finally surpass the series average. And I don't believe this to be a slight at all. He ranked 18th in peer in 2019, and he won once last year, and he had a string of good finishes. This seems harsh, given he's the most recent race winner, but we need to set aside recency bias because his career record to this point suggests we should probably check our enthusiasm and wait to see if there is something greater occurring. Yeah, what do we make of the, you know, we think of Alex Bowman, uh, the high points and the low points, if you will. Remember, I mean, he was not a rookie, people. I mean, some people still think that he was not a rookie when he got in to the Hendrick car, the Hendrick 88. Uh, he was just a, he was new to great equipment for a top tier ride, but he had years of experience before that. It's one thing to suddenly get in a good fast race car. It's another thing to perform while in it. So what do you make of Alex Bowman? ups and downs throughout his career, specifically how you relate, you know, the wins and the highs of last year to what he's done over his career. I didn't like this hire when it happened. I certainly didn't understand replacing Dale Earnhardt Jr. with someone who was effectively out of work, really. But Rick Hendrick apparently loves him some Alex Bowman, and that was clear after the Roval race last year when Rick Hendrick was in the post-race press conference talking about Bowman's second-place finish that day. But he said uh, that he didn't really count Bowman's time in backmarker cars, and that is something to which I'm philosophically opposed. Uh, it's not a slippery slope, Alan, when you write off 71 Cup Series starts. It's a dangerous downhill <laughs> slope. And Bowman's production, he was in his wilderness ages, to be fair, but it was not good. 
Uh, Cole Witt was a similar age and was a better producer. Brett Moffitt was the same age and was a more efficient passer. Michael Annette had better production and a better average finish in a Tommy Baldwin car than Bowman did. The one constant strength Bowman had, and I'm, I'm quick to praise it, you are my witness, is his passing ability on the one mile track type. It has been there since his time in the Tommy Baldwin car. It's something small, but it's something on which to build. Like I mentioned last week, uh, last week's episode with Ryan Priest, just looking for one thing, one sticking point to allow a driver to stay in the cup series. And if Alex Bowman can cut a lap and provide a baseline that's reliable enough, as he showed these last two weekends, he's a driver for which Greg Ives can devise a winning setup. So while I question his hiring and for all the good driver choices Rick Hendrick has made over the years, there were a lot of bad decisions. He picked Casey Mears over Kyle Busch. He hired Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Casey Kane only to pair them with crew chiefs they previously underachieved with. He employed Wally Dollenbach, right? There, there, there were some, there were some mistakes in hindsight, <laughs> but I question this decision making used to hire Bowman, but for Bowman, he doesn't care how he got the job, right? He, he appears to be working to carve a niche for himself. He said in the post-race press conference this past weekend that Hendrick, he, he wants Hendrick to be his long-term home forever, forever, ever, and is working hard to keep his job. And look, it seemed from where I sit, it seems that he's making a pretty good case at that. Sure. Hey, wins count when we talk about perception versus performance and uh, the perception of a winner is very, very good to sponsors. We've talked a lot about the drivers at Hendrick, David. We got to look at the crew chiefs, right? I mean, how do the crew chiefs factor into this new era? Because I know you've done a lot with Cliff, Stan- Cliff Daniels and his relationship and what they've done already. Him and Jimmy Johnson have done together. Alan Gustafson, a longtime veteran especially when it comes into playoff runs and working with guys like Jeff Gordon. You've got Greg Ives, who's got wins now. Um, and, of course, Chad Knauss almost forgot about, oh, the seven-time champion. So how are the crew chiefs factoring into this this resurgence, this new era of uh, a strong Hendrick team again? I knew that you were going to ask this question, and I gave a lot of thought about this in advance. Alan, do you happen to know the last time Hendrick Motorsports hired a crew chief from outside of Hendrick Motorsports. Ooh, Lance McGrew, Pete uh, Rondo. No. <laughs> oh my God, you're just rattling off names. Kenny Francis, way okay. back in 2012. Oh, yeah, okay, with Casey. Yeah. That makes sense. It makes sense coming and, along with Casey. And and since then, uh, it has all been promotions from within or crew chiefs. They farmed out uh, to junior motorsports for the purposes of having them become a Cup Series crew chief. But... That seems risky to me. When that happens, you aren't allowing new ideas to permeate your building, and that can be troublesome. When we think of Joe Gibbs Racing being as strong as they are, it's in part because a few years ago they had an infusion of IndyCar talent in their engineering staff, which sort of turned things around. Yes, they promoted from within, but Adam Stevens and Chris Gabehart appear to be changemakers. And JGR also went out and got Cole Pern when he came available. They trust in who they have, but they also show that they recognize that talent exists elsewhere. And I believe Hendrick lacked some of this awareness, which is 
uh, to me, tangential to their recent dip in speed over the last few years. But it does seem that we're rounding the corner here. So, you know, consider Greg Ives went from a crew chief who inherited Dale Earnhardt Jr., who was older, fairly set in his ways, right? He certainly knew what it took to make his car fast. But now Greg Ives is working with Alex Bowman, who, while he was not a rookie, when he got him, probably didn't really know how to make a fast car into a winning car. That was probably a difference, and that might be an area where I would agree with Rick Hendrick. But Bowman, the driver, his talent wasn't obvious. It takes time. It takes a lot of work to build a viable team around him in that scenario. And as you mentioned, Cliff Daniels, uh, he's also new. He likely does have some new ideas of his own on behalf of Jimmy Johnson. I will say that all four of these crew chiefs fit my definition of a good crew chief and that they do supplement what their drivers seem to need the most. And the behind the scenes engineering talent has finally hit on something that works for the time being. Uh, I realize the new Chevrolet body is being praised, but it's more than that. What they're doing is more than that. We saw Hendrick outperform their usual speed on mile and a half last year, right? You made them your contrarian pick for Las Vegas for a reason. So this does feel like something that has been building. It's just now finally culminating in results that, that we can see that matter on the result sheet. We have done a lot of analysis over two races on the non-drafting ovals, but we have to think about the future with what, with the, the data points we are given, David, because we have talked before about the free agency class heading in to next year. So when we think of a successful first half of 2020, because drivers will start signing soon, you know, come April, June, whatever. I mean, the plans will start getting out there. The success that Hendrick is having, if it can continue. What does this do for the team's chances of landing one of the big marquee free agents? You know, Brad Keselowski, Kyle Larson, Eric Jones, all the names are out there. What do you think this does? And David, I'm going to, before you answer, I just want to make, this could be the 90s NASCAR fan, the early 2000s NASCAR fan in me. You know, I always thought of Hendrick as the Yankees, right? The ultimate team, the ultimate just worldwide thing the ultimate goal for any driver, really, right? How would you not want to go to Hendrick Motorsports? But then recently, when you separate the head and the heart, right, maybe it's not that prime destination anymore. Maybe you want to look elsewhere because a team like JGR is winning all these races. So, you know, is that the situation still? And does this early success help Hendrick court those top free agents once again? Okay, uh, I'm I'm going to piggyback off of that. I'll ask you, how big of a New York Yankee-style masterstroke would it be if Hendrick Motorsports signed Ryan Blaney, the one guy who can hang with the Hendrick cars, at least last weekend in Fontana, right? Because that feels, if they're going to make a New York Yankee-style statement, that seems to be right now like the statement to make. That would be a power shift. How do you feel about that? I see. I, I mean, are you making the connection like go go get the one guy who's kind of beating you, right? The one yeah. guy who's emerging as the the one person who could be a thorn in your side for the next decade or so. If you want, yeah. just go get him from your team. Yeah. Instead of trying to beat us, why don't you join us? Yeah. That 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 definitely feels like 1990s style Hendrick Motorsports. And I guess I need to look back. I don't know that they actually did that, but that's certainly, <laughs> it certainly feels that way. But, 
Uh, and, and that's certainly a New York Yankees move, like that kind of just shrewd maneuvering to go get the best guy before he does irreparable damage to you in the postseason. Um, and for me, though, it would be Ryan Blaney. But well, we'll just, I don't... Can you envision a time? Let's, we're just using this as just an example. I don't know yeah. anything about anything. But Kyle Larson, I know he loves right. dirt racing. But can you envision a time in the past where if Rick Hendrick called, you would never take another phone call no chance whatsoever, right? You would fax over your signature. Now we're at a time where eh, maybe I want to look elsewhere. Maybe yeah. I want to do a little bit of dirt racing because Hendrick isn't what it used to be, right? I mean, it seems like we're kind of in that decision-making mode that if you start rattling off the winds, maybe the, the it swings back to the other side again. Yeah, there are more options, mm. right? Because Stuart Haas did not exist in the 90s. Joe Gibbs Racing was not the Joe Gibbs racing that we know now, the Toyota powered Joe Gibbs racing. Um, that did not exist. So maybe it was more obvious 20 years ago. Um, and, but right now there are options and, and I don't know that it's so straightforward. All these drivers on the free agent market value money and wins. Let's not get that twisted, mm-hmm. but also, uh, comfort matters and, no matter what a team is able to do to set itself up as a showpiece. And right now, after Fontana, Hendrick Motorsports is a nice showpiece. The organization cannot control how much other drivers value comfort. If Ryan Blaney or Brad Keselowski are happy at Penske, if Kyle Larson is happy at Chip Ganassi Racing, that is hard to combat. It just is. Uh, that's, that's why I think when something as wild as Corey LaJoy's handwritten letter to Rick Hendrick that was made public, I actually think he probably made himself a viable candidate for that ride. It's clear in recent seasons that Hendrick Motorsports has avoided lofty payroll, lofty driver salaries. And frankly, LaJoy would come at a pittance compared to Keselowski, who's a former champion, or Larson, or even Blaney. So from where I sit, Corey LaJoy is a real option for this. And we've talked about his peripheral statistics on this podcast. He might fare very well in a car that is the fastest in the series. I think I like his chances of that. And while the perception of Hendrick as a program may shift, uh, especially after these past two weeks, the realities of free agency don't change. Of course, Hendrick wants the best driver that they can get for their money. Anybody would. If you owned a team, that's what you would want. But it's hard to just go out and get them because of factors that we might not even be considering. Good stuff. It was, it's fun to talk Hendrick again because it just allows for uh, more competition each week, right? There's more cars, more fast cars, younger drivers competing and grabbing those checkered flags. Uh, and that's just, that, that just helps our conversations because new, new players in the game, if you will. You know, HMS is the, the latest winner in the series looking for another good run out in Phoenix, which means it's time to look ahead to the weekend, David. Well, Alan, um, just, just so happens this week's, uh, race preview for Phoenix is sponsored by monkey knife fight.com. And 
If you're listening to Positive Regression, there is a great chance you're interested in playing daily fantasy sports. And if that's the case, monkeyknifefight.com needs to be a website you visit. It is the fastest growing daily fantasy website right now. And uh, look, there are other daily fantasy sites in the world, but with Monkey Knife Fight, you're playing against the house. You just have to beat the experts at Monkey Knife Fight. No need to code. No need to create hundreds of different lineups just to have a chance. All you need is your knowledge. And I know positive regression listeners are smart because I have heard from you. All of your emails are in complete sentences. And most important, you really know your NASCAR. So... You know, you know which contrarian choices can give you the best chance of winning money. So why don't you take the chance this weekend? Give it a shot. You can play games built around the NASCAR race at Phoenix and Monkey Knife Fight doing something awesome for listeners of positive regression. If you sign up with a new account using the promo code POSREGPOD, that is P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D, you will receive a 100% match bonus up to $50. Just use the promo code POSREGPOD at monkeyknifefight.com. State and age restrictions apply. Seasite for full terms and restrictions. Alan, Phoenix Raceway. I'm, I'm eager to talk about it. What do you want to know? Yeah, well, I mean, look, it's the debut of the short track rules package for 2020. That's higher horsepower, smaller spoiler, a lot of stuff like that. Different from last year at these short tracks, shorter tracks anyway. Uh, a lot of people say it's similar to 2018. Uh, David, I know you've dived, you dove headfirst into looking into this. So when we think, uh, when we think of last year anyway, you know, some of these shorter tracks, we saw arrow issues. It's like, what? Arrow at shorter tracks? What is this? So we have a new package, what have you. Will passing be a problem at Phoenix? Which again, this is a big test for the championship race in next fall. So don't think teams aren't thinking about that. So what are your concerns? What are your thoughts about passing this weekend in Phoenix? Yeah, I really want our listeners to give some, some real thought to this. The irony of Phoenix, Dover, and New Hampshire, uh, all one-mile tracks, being included in the short track spoiler adjustment is that this was the track type last year where we saw the most surplus passing. And by surplus, I mean what the driver is actually responsible for. The series average was plus 0.36%. All other track types saw a negative surplus. So in theory, passing should become easier. You would think that it would just look more abundant this weekend in Phoenix. But I think what actually will happen is the smaller spoiler makes it harder to keep a car behind you. Passing won't be easier for drivers who are terrible passers. This is not, <laughs> this is not a universal remedy. That, that's not, that's not what this rule change is meant to do. It will accentuate the ability of good passers. And I think that's okay. Uh, the top passers last year on the one mile track type were Kyle Bush, Alex Bowman, Kyle Larson, and Martin Truex. So yes, yes, Yes and yes. I think all four of those guys should be licking their chops heading into the weekend. They might find it a little more difficult to play defense 
But with their ability to pass heightened, I think that would more than break even. So it, it, it's almost like you're you're ensuring that a strength stays a strength with this change. I think that's what we're going to see. All right. Uh, how about restarts? As we always, uh, I study them more than ever, and I hope our listeners do as well. Uh, restarts out in Phoenix, you know, uh, I don't know if a package affects the, the restart numbers that much or what could potentially happen. What should we know about restarts in Phoenix? Yeah. So for the two races last year, uh, as far as the front row went, it was even across the board, uh, 57% retention for both preferred and non-preferred grooves in the spring race. And they both shot up to 67% a piece in the fall race. Deeper in the field is where we should see a greater disparity and the outside is favored. And that might come as a surprise because of all the running room offered by the dog leg on the inside, but more room does not mean better retention in this case. The outside bested the inside by a 40% disparity uh, last fall. That was, a, that was a major sticking point in the penultimate race of the season. And let's talk about this. Guys trying to do too much on restarts from the non-preferred groove. Alan, it's early days in terms of sample sizes. Uh, you know, I don't prefer to dive into them too much, but I found a fascinating pattern on non-preferred groove restarts. Let's see if you can spot the pattern. <laughs> through, through three races, the top four restarters from the non-preferred groove in terms of position retention rate are Ryan Blaney, Brad Keselowski, Matt DiBenedetto, and Joey Logano. Huh. What is the pattern? Well, they are all Penske affiliated Ford drivers. What is that's weird. What does that tell you? Okay. So, all right. Um, I, I think there is more credence to this than a normal, uh, sample size would have you believe. Keselowski and Logano were the top two non-preferred groove restarters in 2019. Uh, I realized what we have in front of us isn't you know, a, a size that any statistician worth their salts would deem reliable. However, uh, while I don't fall into traps of randomness, I do not believe that this is a coincidence. Last week for The Athletic, I produced a film study on Joey Logano's restarts. And for our listeners, the gist of it is that he allowed others around him to make mistakes when he was restarting from the non-preferred groove. He held a steady wheel. And while I understand that uh, being perceived as something brilliant is tough for some fans to swallow, especially considering it's Joey Logano, um, it really is. He's a calm driver on restarts where, at least under this new rules package, this, this horsepower package, the majority of the field panics and goes wild. He, he's the calm guy. And now I believe this is something of a team edict. Kazlowski and Logano are two of the most inquisitive drivers we have in the sport, I think. And Penske is famous for turning over every rock in search of areas they can be far better than everyone else. I compared Logano to a running back in, uh, in football, running in a straight line, while other drivers are running backs who spin and dance and run backwards, any anything but any kind of efficient movement in hopes of a big gain. And that sort of thing does not lend itself to sustained success. 
in simply watching and tabulating restart data, it's clear that from the non-preferred groove, less is more. And the Penske drivers right now are the ones who grasp this concept better than most. Interesting. Patience as a strategy, if you will. And it's even more interesting because at Phoenix, you know what the way the track lays out. People like to dive deep, right? I mean, we think of the restarts there as crazy at times because it offers so many options where maybe what you should keep your eye on this this week, uh, this weekend, are the drivers who don't do anything crazy and watch them maybe prevail. Maybe that's something we, uh, a trend that can continue, David. Yeah, and it'll be worth watching. And, and this track especially, I keep going back to just the panic. If you feel that there, uh, that there is, uh, an inability to pass or you specifically have an inability to pass, um, you're going to try to make the most of the scenario that allows you to gain spots. But Penske drivers seem to just ebb when everyone else is flowing and, and the results speak for themselves. Interesting stuff. Next up, it's time for our contrarian contender picks. And David, I was bragging on you, of course, the first two weeks because you had really good picks. Last week, you picked Tyler Reddick. You weren't so high on it because he finished 11th, but I, I still think you deserve some credit. Maybe it wasn't an A-plus pick, but th- that's B, B-plus range because that tied the the highest finish for any rookie this season. And at a mile and a half or at the two-mile track like California where we thought he would do well, I think 11th is pretty good because he was running a little better at times, and I thought 11th was good. So I'll give you a little credit for Tyler Reddick. Is that okay? I appreciate that, but if there's a listener who bet his mortgage on the <laughs> Tyler Reddick pick and it didn't, it didn't hit big, I think they're going to beg to differ on that one. But, uh, I don't know. I, I think I've got a more realistic, uh, uh, pick this week. Well, we'll see. Yeah. If we're talking C level drivers or on a budget base, I think you got a real deal with Tyler Reddick by picking <laughs> him last week. That's all I'm saying. Whatever games you're playing, I think you've got a real deal if you put Tyler Reddick in your lineup in one of those base games, but let's get to it. Contrarian contenders. Out in Phoenix, David, I'll let you go first. Who, uh, who's your contrarian contender this weekend? Well, he might not be so much of a contrarian, depending on who's picking, but uh, I'm going to pick Kyle Larson. And Ooh. while I'm uncertain of the speed that he's going to have at his disposal, he strikes me as a driver capable of winning at this racetrack. I don't believe he gets a fair shake in regards to contention at Phoenix, and that is because there has been a Kevin Harvick and Kyle Busch firewall of sorts in recent years. But as uh, as I discussed earlier, Larson's passing on the track type on paper is efficient. It also yields results. Um, I mean, at a high clip, he, he's finished six or better in five of his last seven starts at Phoenix. And that's after a myriad of different rules and procedural changes. But the speed to me is a concern. The 42 car ranked 11th and 8th in the two races last year, he finished sixth and fourth. It stands to reason if he can get just a just a tiny increase in initial speed. Come on, come on, Chip Ganassi Racing. He's <laughs> clearly a candidate to win this race. Just just needs a little bit extra, and uh, and maybe we'll see something cool. Interesting pick, and I promise you, we don't talk about this beforehand. Maybe we should sometimes because I almost went with Kyle Larson. Instead, oh. I picked his teammate, David. My Ooh. contrarian contender pick is Kurt Busch. Uh, healthy speed overall so far this season. Took a third place last week in California, so things are going good. But according to all the great work you do, David, motorsportsanalytics.com, he is one of the fastest cars in the fourth quarter of the race. He's getting faster as the race goes on. I think that's a positive. 
And what I also did might be a little uh, surface level, but I went back to 2018 and I looked up. He had the best passing numbers, the surplus passing value at this track type that Phoenix is, the one mile uh, track type. He had one of the, in terms of, you know, contenders and big guys, he had, he was one of the best passers on tracks like this back in 2018. So if what we're hearing, if it is anything like 2018, this new rules package, you couple that with his good speed. I just think Kurt Busch, who's off to a good start this season, I think he continues that out in the desert of Phoenix. Yeah. And that's a good thought to have. I mean, if, if this, uh, smaller spoiler is supposed to put, the race back in a driver's hands, who would it benefit more than a driver who's willing to just go absolutely aggressive for, for the, the full duration of a race? Uh, so that's actually probably a heady pick of, uh, of Kurt Busch. And, uh, I know Daytona and, and Las Vegas didn't go to his desire, but Fontana was, was full of optimism. So maybe Ganassi has a little more speed than they've showed. Yeah, so we're uh, we're going not all in, but maybe some value, some value, contrary contender bets on on team on, on Chip Ganassi racing uh, this weekend. Uh, finally, we're wrapping up these episodes with what do we want to learn out in Phoenix? And David, I think I mean there's a lot to learn, right? Obviously, it's still early in the season. As we talked earlier for much of this episode, is Hendrick Motorsports for real? Does the short track package, will that help at all? The, the, the racing that we didn't see, that some uh, didn't see last year that they wanted, will that help at all at tracks like this? One thing I'm going to go with is the Toyotas, David. Joe Gibbs Racing. Um, I was talking with some of the engineers, some people in the garage, and they say, you know, one big thing, one advantage the Penske cars and the JGR cars had last year was mechanical grip. And do these teams still have it? Does Joe Gibbs Racing, will they excel at a track that, that benefits from uh, mechanical grip? Do they still have an advantage that they used to last year? Obviously not coming out as strong in the first few races of the year. So I think Phoenix is a big kind of litmus test at these tracks where you benefit from mechanical grip. And they had it a lot last year. Uh, do they still have it? And, and one thing that I uh, saw this week during, on Race Hub during Radioactive, uh, it was just an offhand comment. It was it was directed toward California, but at one point in the race, David Kyle Busch came over the radio and says, "I don't have anything special like I did last year." He was talking about his car, and again, it was California. It was at a certain point in the race, but I just caught that comment. And you know, how, how meaningful can that be throughout the season, or what does that mean to the program overall? Is could it mean something bigger when he says, "I don't have anything special like last year"? Of course, he did well in California, not as well this season. But it just makes me wonder about JGR as a whole. So what I want to learn is uh, the advantage they had mechanically. Do they have it again uh, at a track like Phoenix? That's what I want to learn. How about you? Okay. Is it a cop-out to just say everything? Because I'm, I'm just going to say everything. A little bit. Every, <laughs> every detail about this track with this new spoiler, every piece of knowledge I can glean because this is the host of the championship race. This is a dry run, and while a lot can change and will change between this weekend and mm, middle of November, this will provide us uh, more intelligence about this track, who's good, who's bad, uh, better than any practice session will. And Alan, you know, since NASCAR shifted to a playoff format uh, and a winner-take-all championship race, we haven't had a race at a track that already hosted a race earlier in the year. This is new. This probably changes 
how I'm personally going to watch this race instead of figuring out how this race is won, like I usually do. I feel like I'm just going to home in on what might work well come November, even if it just doesn't yield a good result this weekend. You're just trying to find, you know, small, small things, little nuggets that can transform a, you know, a, a, a top five run to a, to a win that can come in handy, come win the championships on the line. I think you will be observing just like many of the crew chiefs will be uh, this weekend. What do we want to learn? Everything. Good episode today. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. We're available no matter what your device. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. This kind of stuff helps spread the word of positive regression. Uh, we, we notice this. It is so appreciated. Uh, we, we love your feedback. We, we, I love when you tell us how you're watching races differently and watching restarts and, and watching green flag pit cycles. It's so cool. So any review or anything you can give us, it really does help. If you have any questions, we'd love to answer those too right here on the podcast. Reach out on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, always working hard. What are you working on this week? This week on The Athletic, I have stories about Chris Busher. I have a story about the Cup Series rookie crop and Kyle Bush's excellence in the Xfinity Series. And I am hard at work on my 2020 top prospects list, which will be oh, posted yeah. exclusively on The Athletic on March 11th. Alan, I think next week we might have to have an all-prospects episode. What do you think? I love it. People love prospects, and I, I learned names like Chandler Smith and uh, the countless others that have, are, have now boiled up to the top, and uh, I can't wait to hear more. I can't wait either. All right, good stuff. Uh, this weekend, no truck racing, unfortunately, but one weekend off before we get one, one, one more weekend off before we go three straight. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, if you were listening on Thursday morning, first of all, thank you for being a subscriber, but check out my Twitter feed if you missed it because we had the A list with Ryan Blaney, the current point leader in the cup series. And, uh, those segments have turned out pretty good so far, David. Uh, the little works in progress, but, uh, we, we get better a little uh, each time we do it, but, uh, uh, Ryan Blaney having some fun uh, stories about uh, being a celebrity, wanting to be a rock star, you know, if he had the choice, and uh, what era rock star he would be. We had a fun conversation. So check that out on my Twitter feed, at Alan Kavana. But other than that, make sure you watch. Uh, just keep it on the Fox Family Networks, FS1, Fox, throughout the weekend, Race Hub, Xfinity, Qualifying, all that stuff, and the Cup Race on Sunday, of course. So, uh, yeah, just have a, have a good weekend watching racing. It always helps. Uh, but thanks for listening. This has been Positive Regression, episode 51 for David Smith. I'm Alan Kavana. Have an awesome weekend, everybody. Stay positive. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. 
For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now, they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.